I'm Andy Murray, the Executive Director of the Major Projects Association, and I'm pleased to welcome you back to part two of our first roundtable discussion on why race matters on major projects. In part two, Erin Matthews, IJ Samuels and June Reed continue to share their experiences, and our discussion is once again chaired by Professor Gary Young. To make the most of this session, it is advisable to listen to part one if you haven't done so already. The last thing I want to talk about um, um, is has come up in different ways uh, with all of you. And actually, as June mentioned, the Sewell report, it comes up in the Sewell report. And this is the accusation of claiming victimhood. This thing of don't be a victim. Um, and our desire, the general desire, I believe, not to be a victim. And yet the actual fact that you are being victimized and so, I mean, you know, and there's a contradiction there. We are, we are striving to not be a thing. Uh, but if someone comes up and hits you over the head with <laughs> an iron bar, you are a victim of an assault. That doesn't mean that's all you are, but that is one of the things that you are in that moment. And so this kind of, um, this, this notion when, when the issue of racism is challenged, when the issue of race is challenged, one of the things that comes back is in different versions, you're playing the race card, you are kind of, you are playing the victim, uh, don't be a victim and so on. And in different ways, each of you, Aaron, you want to do something about Rose Must Fall, you get some, you get some pushback, you find some colleagues, you kind of, um, you make a different kind of intervention. June, you, you decide at a certain point, I'm not having this, you go to the superior, you say, look, this is out of line. Um, uh, IJ, you join together with the, uh, is it the Black Professional Construction Network? Black Professionals in Construction. Black Professionals in Construction. You get like, all of you, have demonstrated agency. I would argue all of you have also been, for now let's say, recipients on the wrong end of racism. I would call that being victims of racism. It's just that that's not all you are and that's not what you intend to remain as. Um, and so I wanna talk about how, or you to talk about how you've met these challenges or you've seen these challenges, you've been confronted with them, and then you've engaged them. And what the process was by which you engaged them? Was it that you, you looked around for colleagues, then you had a conversation, then you chose a point of intervention, you went above the person's head to somebody else? What was it and what, how did you do it and what emboldened you to do it? So we start with um, uh, Aaron. I, th I think it's really interesting what you say about victimhood and, and, and being labeled as a victim. I've definitely had, you know, colleagues talk about, um, you know, me, me talking about my issues as, as being a victim and do I want to be branded like, like that? Do I want to be identified as someone um, who's, who's gone through that. And I think, I think for me, 
I, I would change that victim word and turn it into an, an activist. You know, when when there was the wheelchair protest outside uh, Parliament, you know, there were people in wheelchairs who were, you know, taken off by police, um, rounded up and arrested. Did They could have seen themselves as victims, but now with the Disability Discrimination Act and um, wheelchair access being much more prevalent in the country, I see, I feel that they see themselves as activists and would never call themselves victims. Um, and I hope that um, in myself in, in, in the few years, I, I can see myself as, a, as an activist rather than a victim, someone who spoke about something that was wrong at the time. Do you not think that your, um, the story that you gave of asking about roads must fall, being pushed back, asking other colleagues, then coming back with an intervention, do you not suggest that while you, while you were on the receiving end of kind of effectively being silenced, you found a place to express your voice, that you were being, you were definitely being active uh, in that moment. And I wonder what, what emboldened you to do that? What, because there are consequences. And I always tell um, in journalism with my young, younger colleagues, I say that there are consequences when you do these things, you shouldn't imagine that they will be cost-free. Now the consequence may be that people now see you as a great, um, uh, as someone who knows their own mind and is an effective conversationist and debater. And it, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily all gonna have the same way, but they are not gonna see you in the same way afterwards as they did before. And so I'm, I'm just wondering what, what got you there and whether you understand that as an act of resistance almost. Yeah, and I, I do worry about that every day. You know, my dad says, you know, if, if you get blacklisted because of the, what you're speaking about, if, if it negatively affects your career, um, that, that will be on your head and you could have not spoken about it and maybe got further. But I think for me, for me, it's about how I want to see myself um, and looking back and learning more about our history in the UK recently, speaking to my parents, to my uncles um, and hearing the struggles that they faced has given me the, the, the confidence to, that, that I should address it in my time in the same way that they addressed it in their time, if that makes sense. I think the the legacy of what people have done before and hearing their stories has emboldened me. Um, and that's why I guess I, I will keep talking about it. And that may be something, it, when you have the major projects, when you, when you are having your more internal conversation about major projects, when, when I'm not there, that might be something to, to discuss, the kind of, um, that people have gone before you and maybe in terms of educating each other and your colleagues about the history of kind of uh, uh, non-white people in this profession and how they've uh, uh, fared. And before I come on to uh, June about this, I do want to say from my own experience that there is something quite important about agency about saying, well, if I'm going to make a mistake, it will be my mistake. And that 
people would often, when I started writing, people would often say, you know, you will be pigeonholed, you will be stereotyped. And I thought, yeah, but these are all in the passive voice, aren't they? You will be, you will be, you, you know, this will happen to you, but nothing about what I, how I might happen to the world. <laughs> it's all about things happening to me. And that um, an, an older writer, Carol Phillips, um, told me once, and it really stayed with me, he's 10 years older than me, so he's not super old, but he, um, honest, but he said, um, he said, these things are always worse in your head. And there is something that I think is very true about that, which doesn't mean that we don't need to be strategic, that it doesn't mean that you just go in there like a bullet in a china shop, there are ways and means. And that's where talking to older people about how they did it becomes very useful. But that there's a, there's a price to pay if you do, but there's also a price to pay if you don't. Um, and I think in a range of ways, we've kind of, we've touched on what that price may be in terms of self-doubt, low self-esteem, a kind of, you know, a, a kind of almost a dying from the inside. But um, uh, June, can you talk to me about how you were emboldened to make the moves that you did to claim back your agency? I, I was reflecting, um, Gary, on, on what you were just saying. And um, I think that what happened with me was that I saw it as a case of bullying. And only took on board the racism aspect of it, maybe in speaking with Andy and with Manon. Um, I think because uh, so I, I I dealt with it initially from that response, and I, and I I can't remember how it evolved, but I just got to this point where I realised that the things that they were accusing me of, and the things that they were trying to bully me on, were wrong. And I thought about how can I deal with this? And um, as I mentioned earlier, one of, the, one of the things I did, I can't remember the order in which I did things, but one of the things I did was to speak to the senior assistant director who was a black man. And he, I have to say, even today, um, having left that authority six years ago, I'm still in contact with him because all the black people that I knew in that authority respected this person because he was fearless. He took on the police in a certain situation and he would go into the chief executive and fight the cause for other people, other black managers. And these were people who, you know, were principal officers and fight their case. So he was seen as someone who would take on the establishment. And um, so I was able to speak to him and get his guidance. And that helped me with my agency. And then, um, as I touched on earlier, I was able to speak with um, other colleagues who were on the working group, the um, EPPM, you know, steering group rather. And I could take support from them because they were, they respected me, but they were also extremely loyal. And they were furious, actually, at the way I was being treated and the fact that the um, EPPM programme was being jeopardised. And also, I think in speaking to Andy, although um, as he recounts, he 
the way in which I put it to him was a stakeholder issue because primarily it was we had a stakeholder who was the lead stakeholder, ironically, rubbishing this high-profile pan-London major project. Um, and in so doing, were bullying me. So I think what it was, um, to answer your, to, to, to summarise and respond to what you were saying, Gary, it came to a point where actually I, I, I kind of realised that the, the, the way in which I was being treated was not acceptable and I wasn't going to take it. And I got guidance from um, black senior leaders, black and white peers, and, um, you know, engaged with Andy and found, found a way of, of, of working through it. And it comes back to what AJ said. I think um, Aaron's touched on it. I so passionately believed in that programme and I wasn't going to get anybody getting get, get in my way and its way. Um, and if that meant that they were going to sack me, well, you know, so be it. Good luck. Um, and what I realised, actually, what I initially feared was, was losing my job and having no income and being a single parent. But it, it comes back to what Aaron was saying. You know, at the end of the day, it is about remembering that people have gone before us. Um, and I'm a child of the late 50s, so I'm older than all of you. Um, I remember the, the signs, as you know, we all know, um, no, no, no Irish, no dogs, no blacks. Um, our parents, my parents, let me say, coming here in the late 50s by themselves, um, you know, leaving, leaving Jamaica in the case of my parents and coming here and not knowing anybody or knowing few people and making a life and being successful um, and having to give up careers and, you know, do the menial jobs because that was the way of getting employed. So I think one of the things that we as black and brown peoples need to remember, and I'm glad that Aaron made that point, is the people that have gone before and the people that have lost their lives. And to touch to the point that Andy made earlier about white people who want to support um, and, uh, and address and be anti-racist, actually, is people like Blair Peach, you know, in the late 70s, he lost his life, you know. So I think, I think part of... Um, working with the organizations that we're hoping that this uh, video will reach out to is to, as part of their awareness raising, is to share some of that history with them, to say, you know, people have gone before, people have lost their lives. This is an important issue. To touch on what AJ is saying about solutions, to touch on what you and AJ were saying was about the bottom line. At the end of the day, I'm going to assume that these business leaders want their business to be successful. And if for no other reason than that, then we need to tap into that aspiration, that drive. You know, and as Malcolm said, by any means necessary, up to a point. But yeah, up the revolution. <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to... Uh come to AJ, I, I would add to Aaron's and June's um, exhortation to, um, to make these points, these stands, these interventions, um, which it's important to, well, I, I think well, a couple of things. First of all, it's, it's important to, I think, understand that you're not going to win every battle and that there's some battles you're not even going to fight. And you're not going to fight them because you want to live to another day. So I'm always careful with these things to talk about kind of the need to box clever. 
that I've not responded, and I don't think anybody on this call has responded to every insult and to every belittling and to every, because that way madness lies. We'll go mad. We'll turn the people around us and the people that we love mad and we won't win. And so there is a, there is an element of kind of rope-a-dope here. <laughs> you kind of, you know, you and, and you, you wait for your moment. So these interventions do have to be strategic, but they're not just about the people who went before. They're also about the people who come after. The people whose names you don't know, but you're gonna pay for in the same way that the people that came before you didn't know what your name would be, but they paid for you in some way. And so there is a, there is a continuum here that kind of, we wanna be able to leave our institutions in a better state than when we arrived at them. And which I think is a, a good rule of thumb, really. Have I made any difference? And we've, we're not employed necessarily, we're not put on these earth to be change agents, right? You enter this job because you want to do the job. So it could be that you are inspired and motivated to kind of um, make a change racially, but it could be just that you want to do the job. And it could be that you're kind of quiet, quiet person and you don't want to kind of massively get involved, but there are still things you can do. There are still people you can talk to. There's still a helping hand that you can offer. Not everybody's going to get involved at the same rate, at the same stage, at the same level. And that's quite an important thing to understand. So people don't think like, oh my God, I'm going to have to go full scale public enemy ninja and kind of, you know, threaten to burn the house down or I won't be doing my job. And, and ultimately we do have jobs to do. And if we don't do those jobs, we will be judged by that. Uh, so unless your job is to be the diversity manager, in which case, fine, then we have to balance these, um, these two things. But anyway, uh, I, I Jane. Thanks, Gary. Um, a lot of things that you said there just um, resonated with me and just on June's point and Aaron's um, insights as well regarding them. Um, if I go back to picking up from what Aaron said about um, his response to, to how one could either see yourself as a victim or as an activist, um, I'm, I'm kind of along the same line. So um, I shared earlier before in terms of how my background and my upbringing, just there was zero tolerance for victimhood in there. So I just don't see situations from that lens. Um, I've, I've had to I've had to go through life understanding what it means to actually reflect in that sense. Uh, I just rise up to challenges rather than pausing to see myself as a victim, if that makes sense. But um, I'll even take one step further in terms of what Aaron described as um, being an activist. And I'd say the way I see my role, my voice and what I contribute to the table is being a critical conscience being a critical conscience to where it matters. So um, be it within leadership space, holding businesses to account, holding leaders to account, coming on this platform, you know, having this conversation that's um, raising awareness, challenging us in the way that we think, sharing our experiences. For me, that's where I see my role coming as that critical conscience to support the leaders to do the right thing. Do the right thing because it's right for, for people, right for society, and right for the business. That's where I see my role here. 
um, and, and then back to the other um, point raised, Gary, about what caused the awakening? At what point did I get there? And what gave me that bold um, boldness to just go about putting my voice on the table? Um, I suppose like uh, a number of people in this sort of journey where you go through life, starting your career, hit some obstacles, um, you try to make it work on your own, get your head, put your head down, keep going. That was the most part of my career. But something that lifted the lead for me would be um, that brought everything together would be when I stepped into management initially, when I first became a manager, I quickly realized um, I didn't have a lot of female role models I could look up to. And then just to lift it up one layer, I couldn't see any black leader, male or female, within my reach that could be an inspiration or if you want to call them role model to me. And then I thought something is wrong here. I'm going to either be on this journey by myself and pretending it's okay, or I'll put my voice on the table. And I, I suppose one of the things also that helped me on that journey uh, uh, and Picking up on what you said, Gary, we all are different spectrum in how we can contribute to this conversation. Not everyone is going to be at it at the same level. Um, possibly before I got to the level of experience and expertise that I have now, possibly my voice wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have had that confidence to step out to do this. Let's be honest here. I got to a point where I felt, you know what, even if I'm out of job today, I'm confident that I could go to Tesco and get a job and still put my voice on the table. It comes with time for some. And for people like Aaron, it comes from day one. Everyone is different on their journey and when it comes to them. Mine came when I stepped into that space of management and I thought, hang on, this is going to be a lonely road unless I do something. And that's when I then thought, Rather than stay there and sulk, I've always been one that was raised to find a challenge, find a solution. So I, I just went to my, my leadership team at the time. I said, um, ask for permission to just do a, a, little, a little bit of a pilot to do, run a mentoring program for women who want to step into management and leadership or just you know bring women on the journey with me. And it was a little pilot of about, I think it was about nine to 18. It started about nine and then eventually about 18 in the first year did a six months pilot with them, just run a few sessions where, you know, why do you come to work? You know, it, it's beyond, I mean, Gary, you said some people just, they love what they're doing. They just turn up to work and that's it. Some people, it's much bigger, but situations, circumstances have made them just get their head down. And it's when you begin to unpack. So when I say I carry the voices of other women or other people within um, across different businesses, this is where this comes from, where there are people who have been on this journey. They cannot put their voice on the table like I'm doing now. So many, so many, countless of people. And that's one thing we need to be mindful of. People are still worried about what will happen to my job unless leaders rise up and put measures in place to change diversity of thoughts on the table. We want people that bring different dimensions. If you think about what Aaron has been sharing, I want to go back to people understanding the history of how we've built, um, how we build things within the industry. The work he's doing around inclusive um, stations, accessibility and all of that, it comes with people bringing that diversity of thoughts on the table. Imagine if we didn't have Aaron's voice on the table, 
when they're doing such designs? Where would we be in such projects as an example? So it, it's good for society, it's good for business, and it's good for individuals overall. So fast forward again in terms of where the awakenings come from. My, my passion really is about, there's some work we're doing, which um, we'll probably touch on when we go into the next, next session about um, solutions in terms of how do we drive inclusion in leadership? We, we're getting diverse as a business, as, um, as major projects, major programs. We, we're having platforms where we're saying, what can we do to bring people on the journey? But we're very getting a little bit good now at bringing them at the entry level and mid-level. And we seem to be doing okay because in stats, the numbers are beginning to rise. Reality check. They're not rising where their voice counts. Sorry. They're not there where the voice counts, where those decisions are made. And that's the big deal. If I don't see those black partners within a business, if I don't see those black directors within a business, if I don't see those Asian directors within a business, if I don't see those female partners across, how do I know that that business have got the right voices to help them make the right decisions? It's not only about color, I keep saying, it's not only about the race, it's not only about LGBT, it's not only about gender, it's about having the full diversity of thoughts on the table across all spectrums. We need to get better at this. We are very good on major projects and major programs when it comes to looking after our clients, when it comes to meeting our deadlines to turn around that schedule, to tie into the grid on a certain date, we meet those deadlines. If we want to do this, we can. We only have to put our money where our mouth is. Gary, can I add something that AJ prompted? Um, um, and it ties into what you were saying about not fighting every single battle and being strategic. Totally agree. Um, because you wouldn't last long as an individual and you wouldn't be very effective. But there's also something that she said that made me um, realise that I often, because I was, um, if I'm talking about my previous employment, um, I was often the most senior black person in the room. So although in the projects and programs team, I was looked down upon and seen as a junior, in terms of grade level, um, prior to the program office and um, whilst in the program office, I'd be in a room of mainly white males and certainly white people. And so in some ways, I wouldn't fight every battle, but if something was being said or done, I would have to articulate a response to that in a way that, as AJ put it, hopefully, or, or maybe you put it, you know, if it was AJ, about the importance of then speaking and being listened and being heard. And hopefully on the majority of occasions, that intervention carries some weight. And I previously gave an example to um, colleagues, I can't remember if it was in our last discussion where, because in terms of intersectionality, I'm black and I'm a woman, I'd often be put on um, recruitment panels. And I remember there was a position whilst that came up whilst I was in the uh, um, program, project and program team, where a white woman who'd been in the council, I'm talking for decades, was asked as every single at that time, 
interview question concluded, the interview concluded with the equalities question, she couldn't answer it. This is a local government or local council rather that had an equality statement on the council website, attached to every job application that went out. But she is someone who'd been in the council, had never been challenged to articulate, um, um, to ex explain, give examples of, you know, equal opportunities as it was then, um, you know, how to deliver that within, you know, any kind of setting. And the um, senior um, um, director that I mentioned, who was a female, um, wanted to, to um, allow her to be appointed. And I said, we can't, because at that time, if an applicant wasn't able to um, um, answer the equal, equal opportunities question, they couldn't be appointed. It was an essential, essential question. And I'm sure, you know, 10 years on or however long it is on, had I not been on that panel, they would have appointed that person. Whereas, you know, as a black person, if you don't meet an essential um, question, there's no way anyone's going to argue for you to get the job. No way, it's not going to happen, Jose. So, you know, um, I, as I said, totally agree with you about being strategic. I totally agree with not fighting every battle. But I think it's important that where we are in a space where we can um, bring, as uh, I go back to AJ, that lens and we can uh, enable our voice to be heard, it's important that we do so. Um, so, look, I want to thank you all, uh, June, IJ, Aaron, Andy. I think it's been a very rich conversation. I think we could have gone on uh, uh, much longer. We've got a sense that kind of of the fragility that's involved, that by the time these issues come to light, by the time they are voiced, there's been an inner turmoil. There's been a, uh, there's already been several internal conversations and that, um, uh, that we, we need to be at the table. It's not just that we want to be at the table. We need to be at the table because otherwise what happens at the table makes no sense or it makes insufficient sense. And, um, <clears throat> and that our presence is understood not tokenistically or decoratively, oh, that would be nice, but instrumental, instrumental to the organisations that we're working with, working better, not just working fairer, but working better, working more productively, and that the inclusion um, is, has a moral case, absolutely, but it also has a business case. Uh, that you're not, as an institution, doing your job if you exclude our talent. So with that, I want to thank uh, uh, you all uh, for uh, taking part, sharing your experiences and, uh, and your reflections. Thank you. Thank you, Gary, so much for facilitating this session and uh, to IJ Aaron and June's, uh, our panellists. Um, I would like to signpost and just uh, um, reveal the, the other sessions that we'll have coming up as well. But I thought also worthwhile just reflecting because, you know, I, I attended today, you know, to um, a, you know, um, introduce a session, but they really wanted to, 
to, to listen, not talk, um, to, to hear what everyone had to say. And, and some of the reflections there in terms of um, really thinking about the conversation about the burden, that that, that part of the, the conversation and the, the impact it had on, you know, it can have in terms of self-doubt, self-esteem, um, uh, and you know, the consequences of, of taking action. When I was reflecting on those conversations, I've not to ha- I've not had to had that burden as a you know as a person you know uh, not of color. Perhaps I've had it in other ways, but I've not had that because of the color of my skin. And and, and I think that's where there are differences. And then in an if if I uh, been in a position where I had that self-doubt and then don't go for a, a job or don't put myself out there, then, you know, then that's holding, you know, that, that would hold me back in terms of the opportunities that, that would, would come to me. And, and I think outside, you know, you know um, the conversation we had right at the beginning about, you know, perhaps people being racist and being able to call it out. It's, it's the understanding of the consequential impact from those things that uh, is why when, when IJ said it earlier on, we're not seeing, you know, people of colour in, in senior leadership positions, um, you know, that there's a whole complexity of uh, cause and effect going on there. Um, so that was just one of the things I thought I would, I would reflect on. Um, so just to signpost um, at the next session. So this one has really been about, uh, you know, voices being heard and, for, you know, to, to really listen to, you know, the experiences of, of you know, very three, three different, very different uh, people in terms of, the roles they performed and where they are in, in, in career terms. Um, the next session, we're going to talk about um, you know, what can we do on major projects. Uh, and one of the things we'll explore there is the difference between the diverse organisations that may participate in major projects versus diverse major projects. Um, and, and that would be where perhaps, as I mentioned earlier, people missing out on the best projects, um, not having the people in the leadership roles and, and the need for those role models as well. Um, and then sort of picking up on Aaron's point, sort of the role of major projects themselves and, and recognising perhaps, you know, the, the mistakes of the past. So that's what we're going to have, I'm sure, some, some rich discussions on, on that topic. And then, Gary, you and I are going to have a session, um, perhaps a trip down memory lane in some <laughs> respect, uh, because, as, as I mentioned right at the beginning, coming from uh, the same town, um, being the same age, I will point out I'm slightly younger than you, Gary. Um and uh, going to the same school, you know, we have a lot in common. Uh, but yet, I, I suspect our experiences of growing up and when we entered into work have been quite different because of the, the colour of our skin. So, it'd be really interesting to, to see, you know, what, what we can draw out from that too. Um, but otherwise, thank you very much. It's been well. It's been a, a really, really interesting session, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, the start of many more conversations going forward. Thank you. Thanks, Andy.